Drawing from the Well is a podcast series from the youth wellness movement. We are educators, researchers, healers, parents, and community members striving to repurpose schools to address the critical wellness gaps in our youth's development. Founded by Community Responsive Education. Welcome to our year in review, really just our season review. Uh, mic check, one, two, three. I'm here with Jewel Kinjis, and I'm Tiffany Marie. How y'all feeling? I made it, man. I'm alive. I made it. You had that 19, right? You had that 19? Wow. Wait, was I not supposed to tell people that? It's no secret. It's oh, not okay. a secret. I'm just not going to brag about it. So <laughs> first of all, I just need to step up my health regimen. And mm-hmm. I don't know how other folks responded, but my response was intense migraines. Couldn't see, couldn't walk, couldn't really talk good. And yeah, I'm just thinking about that. And I'm like, I made it. And I don't take that for granted. I don't take it lightly. Mm-hmm. We're glad you're here. Yes. Glad you made it. I'm, you know, doing okay. It's a cloudy day here. And I always appreciate those times when there's a bit of cover. It's cooler. And yeah, you know, doing all right. Blessed. How you doing? I'm great. I'm feeling good. Y'all know this uh, last few months gave up sugar, gave up white carbs. I'm down like 20 pounds as of... The other day, my runs feel a lot better. Feel pretty good. Yeah. Grateful to be healthy, to be on this side of life and experiencing a lot of greatness. So let's get this party started. We had a lot of guests this season. Mm-hmm. And I want to know from y'all, what was your favorite episode? That's such a controversial question. You know, I'm going to take the non-controversial way out and say that they all had aspects that I love and appreciated. (laughs) Each guest that we had a chance to sit with while we were both recording the sessions and then hearing the way that all of that came together with the openings for each episode and the hearing from the young people that went alongside, I feel like they offered us a pathway the podcast Drawing from the Well, right, which invites us to both go and return to the teachings of water, the wisdom of water, and also the life-giving principles of water, while also imagining and enlivening our wellness. Each guest brought that to the space. I appreciated from the jump hearing from Stove talking about really his culture that he was being brought into and using as both weapon and protection and reflection space in Chicago. I appreciated the reflections from Brother Cam around what it means to have cultural relevance, moving to some of the discussions we have with Sister Maisha on the possibilities and problems and also promises of restorative justice practices to the interviews we have with the young people, as well as the discussions about land with Jazz and Theo and other people. It's been like a journey, I feel like, this podcast around pathways towards more freedom. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just appreciative to have been able to bear witness to these different spaces. Mm -hmm. No hate on the people I didn't mention. I mean, if I was one of those people and I was listening, I would uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> I love all y'all. I mean, the thing is, is, as beautiful as that flowery response was, it was the wrong answer. How so? Because your favorite episode should be the one with your entire family on there, or at least the ones with your mama or your child or your niece. Like, you didn't even name those. What's that about? That's post-traumatic slave syndrome, according to <laughs> Joy DeGruy. I don't want nobody to think that they're special and then take them away from me, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Joy, what you think? What was your favorite episode? I have two favorite episodes that are present with me now. And the first one is Candace. Mm-hmm. I think what it really brought up for me is I don't know if I was always encouraged to like critique and like hold people accountable, people who may have positioned themselves in power. And my late professor, who she would be ashamed to know that I got my master's in ethnic studies, I have to say. <laughs> professor Head will always say, like, no one is above critique. No one is above critique. And I took that very serious until I didn't, until I got into spaces where I felt like everybody knew, you know, more than what I knew. And maybe I didn't hold people accountable. Maybe I didn't ask enough questions. And I felt like the episode with Candace had me ask some questions, you know? Mm. And it had me in my own personal life, not just like based off the episode, but based how I've engaged with people off some of these like principles, I've felt encouraged to hold people accountable, even if they're someone that is close to me or that has been a mentor or whatever statue of hierarchy I have positioned on them. I'm letting it go. And that episode, yeah, it helped me like take the pedestal off of people. So really liked it. Definitely made me uncomfortable in certain parts. And I like that. I like being stretched. The other one was with Theo, though. It was hard not to brag about Theo because I went to his farm. And so it was hard to do the episode without like just bragging about him. But I also think I did brag about him. But because it's a real reality. So many of us feel distant from land. So many of us feel distant from being self-sufficient. And Theo just three years ago was working a corporate job like most of us, you know? Mm -hmm. And three years later, he has constructed four to five sites of homes on his land, you know, while also cultivating and being in relationship with land and learning how to grow different crops. And he's just genius. It's really pretty magnificent. And anytime I get a chance to brag about him, I do. I've introduced Theo to about five people now nice. <laughs> because I'm so amazed at you had a chance at life. You had a chance to take your time back. And this is what you did. Hmm. You created more community and more spaces for your children to be free. And I really love that. In my own personal life and in my own personal perspective, I don't see I don't see black men loving and nurturing like that. And so to me, Theo represents something that I've never seen before, like a true impossibility. And I love it. I love being proven wrong. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that that's what 
was happening when I met Theo and was interviewing him and continued to introduce him to people. But I feel that now more in my gut. He's like a Black man that I never thought existed. And he's just like a magical fairy loving on land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't have a favorite episode. I think that would be ridiculous to have a favorite episode. All the beautiful, powerful people we've had, I could never choose. And in some ways, I'm judgmental of you all for doing that. But I'm grateful for everybody that came on and, and blessed us. It was intense because I think I don't think a lot of people know that we did all the interviews in one month. And so that was really hard, both organizing and kicking it out. And at, at some point I was really like worried. I was like, this is about to be whack. But I think sometimes when you get in the motion of things and listening, it just seemed so much more about production. But the guests really brought it. And I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for the energy that y'all brought to it. And then I'm interested in like what exactly folks are taking from some of this. Like I've done two talks in the past week and there's the content that we put out there and then how it lands, I think is sometimes very different. And then going past the like being excited or tantalized, tickled, like, you know, you go to black church and you feel a whole lot and then you go and eat stuff that's going to kill you and then you're talking crazy to people, you know, like, but like the feeling that comes in the moment with the message, you're looking at me. I can say stuff like that. Cause I'd be in, I was in the continue. I'm not trying to play nobody. I'm just talking about experiences that I've had where you sitting in there and you just like, Ooh, that was moving. And then you don't really always apply that message. It just feels good in the moment. Mm. I had two talks in the past week and I was tripping. Cause like one of them, Folks was like, they was ready to get out of there. I felt hella weird because they invited me. I was like, what is going on? Y'all ain't like, I asked you to come here. And then I had another one when folks had masks on. And, you know, being from the Black church and a lot of the foundations of my public speaking, I need, like, people to talk and I need expression. And I was struggling, as folks would say. How y'all feel like people taking or receiving these messages? The first thing that comes to mind is when people tell me, you know, that they've heard the show, it's never critique. People are always like, oh, such a good episode, you know, kind of, you know, a very vague, shallow brush over. The other part of me is like where there's a totally different response where I don't know what people are really feeling and thinking listening to the show. But I know that I've seen a lot of examples of us working in schools, not just Black folks, but brown folks working in schools or working with young people. And there's just so much unaddressed harm. So while we're having these real life conversations, there's like, you know, real life experiences that I'm witnessing or I'm seeing. Of course, I don't know if those folks are like listening to this podcast, but it makes me think about the content of the podcast. We talked a lot about healing. We talked a lot about wellness and cultural response. All of these words, all these keywords that we all love to use Mm -hmm. and working in schools and working around a lot of hurt people makes it hard to stay 
in schools and being mm-hmm. around a lot of hurt people. Cause there's a lot of us with good intentions, with good words. We know the words, we know cultural relevancy. We know how to teach about Asajj Shakur, all the things. We don't know how to always apologize. We don't know how to address our harm. We don't know how to call out men who are harming women and girls. You know, we just keep them in the community. Mm. And that's what's been coming up. It's been bothering me. It hurts my feelings because I know there's been times where I haven't said anything or I'm like, see, that's why I've never said anything. Because even if you did believe me, there's nothing real you would do besides talk about goddamn cultural relevancy (laughs) and wellness and healing. Mm. I don't know what it looks like in real time. So that's, I don't know how people are receiving these messages, but there was a lot of accountability that was happening through these episodes Mm. where people either address the harm they've inflicted upon young people themselves in schools, you know, just learning. And so accountability, accountability, that's a, a word that we've been using, that I've been using. And I would just like to see it in practice, especially when it comes to Black men, especially when it comes to brown men, especially when it comes to the harming of women. I would like that to be taken a lot more serious Mm. in the communities where so many of us love to talk in Mm. and hold space Mm -hmm. and do ceremony. And I'm not above critique. You know, I'm going back to Dr. Hay. I'm not above critique. And I believe that I am in a community and I know that I am around people that holds me accountable. And I just wish that men can say the same. And I don't know if men can say the same because there's too much harm happening. And they just continue to teach. They just go back to the school and teach. Like nothing happened. Mm. A lot of what you're saying reminds me of this new Kendrick album. Have y'all heard it? Mm-mm. No. I have been challenged to listen to it by one of your folks. And I said, okay. One of my folks. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Oh, man. That's rough. I listened to it twice when it came out. It's a very unpopular opinion. I won't even share that about Kendrick Lamar. There's a lot of really great music production going on that album. And I think it's intense because he attempts to take on a lot of issues. I think there's an attempt to take on misogynoir. There's an attempt. I think there's an attempt to take on transphobia. And I appreciate it was this video I see on Instagram. I appreciate the video because the video kind of laid out three different types of people, which I think are three different responses, which I think are also maybe representative of like how some folks may be taking our episodes as well and the content within it and our attempts really. Cause some folks might be listening and being like, I can't believe they tried to do that. And that's all they said about it. You know what I mean? All of it. I think most of what we do is an attempt at something, but the video was saying like for some people, when they listen to his content, particularly this album and those attempts that he made, anything he does is, widely celebrated and applauded. I don't know, maybe because of who he is and what he's overcome. And then there's another group that hears it and it's just like, it's messy, but it's necessary because there's a demographic of people who will benefit from that. And so we'll take the messiness of it and the complexity of it because these are generating conversations that have not been had before or they have not been had 
via this particular platform. And then there are some folks who are just like, I don't need to be a part of the messiness of you trying to process your privilege and how you make sense of these issues in real time. I think that's complex. And I thought it was a really great argument. I think that's similar, I think, with a lot of our content. It's an attempt, you know what I mean, to address issues, to engage them. Controversial issues, some would say, and our approaches sometimes are seen as countercultural or are radical. And I hear that idea that you're saying about folk and community and, and around accountability. And then there's attempts at people attempting to be accountable. And so I'm, I'm interested in, maybe I, I'm leaning toward what does it mean for us to hold the messiness of people's attempts to be accountable, to be transformed? I agree with you. There was a lot of modeling of that this season, particularly from men. And there were women and queer women who led the way around using their bodies, their experiences to provide pathways and roadmaps for what that could look like. But yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in like what we do around the messiness because I feel like a lot of people don't like to get dirty. Yeah. You know, is it Tony Bambara and Salt Eaters, where she says, are you sure, sweetheart, that you want to be well? I think she goes on to say that, you know, wholeness is no trifling matter and there's a lot of weight when you're well. And I feel like that's a powerful reminder of the invitation. It's a reminder and an invitation to really sit with what we're up against. I think that what we're up against is intergenerational. It's immediate in our life. It's also past. It's our own childhood traumas and harms, which we spoke about on this. And it's the, there's a space between the capacity to take accountability, to imagine accountability as an actual tangible practice in a world that is has no accountability to anyone or anything mm. except for its own survival, which means and spells and has only meant our doom. Even like the conceptualization of what it means to be a man, like what we know of that comes from complete and utter harm and trauma that we have not yet really addressed or healed from. So it's like we're trying to heal a deadened and beaten to death way of being and then saying, well, what can we excavate from that? What is the man anyway? What is cisgender man anyway in a body that was holistically for others? And then try to construct things around that with embers of what we maybe were or what we hope to be. And so I've been thinking a lot about this as we've had these conversations, going back to the first one we had with Stove. I do remember him saying that about like faculty members need to stop helping your students. I didn't even know that that was like a practice coming into higher ed, that that was something that goes on. And then there's gaslighting around that. And to your point, Jewel, to hear some of these very same people get up and say all the things that we say about whether it's critical race theory or feminism or whatever, and then have that be hand in hand with the very truth of harm that continues to go on. And I just don't know, Tiff, to your question, like how people are taking it. I don't know how many of us or what collective of us are in a space where we're really committed to the whole reality of what it means to be well or to try to engage wholeness, what that would actually mean for what we need to let go of, 
what we cannot continue to do and hold at the same time. So I don't know, you know, it's very difficult to track that. It's like you can say a thing and have that be very clear, you know, and then I do wonder how people go back into school after we say what we say. I wonder <laughs> that about myself, you know, and maybe that's too controversial to say here, but there's a question that's begging us to say at the very root of all of this, why do we continue to do any of the things that we're doing, mm-hmm. knowing what we know? Mm-hmm. give up sugar and white carbs to mm-hmm. like we know this shit gives us cancer we know it we have evidence we've lost people yeah in our life and i'm still probably gonna have a hamburger you know so there's like these decisions that we make to kill ourselves a little bit to kill our communities a little bit maybe because we don't have really solid alternatives yet or maybe to your point jewel like solid examples of when we see men or cisgender folks or heterosexual folks or whatever, you know, taking responsibility or accountability for harm. Maybe that's why we continue to engage in the bullshit. I don't know. I feel like there's enough matches with our podcast for true fire to be lit. I'm just wondering, like, what will be the result? Hmm. Joe, why you go to school? Why are you still work in the school after the podcast episodes? <laughs> <laughs> Not to call him by out. I mean, I'm still. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey! I'm a, I'm okay with being called out. That's the difference between me and other people. I'm okay. I'm good. Okay, I can have a conversation. I could be challenged. Well, one, I'm gonna respond to the whole school thing, but I'm gonna respond to the food thing because y'all be making jabs at the food, and I just want to say yes, some of the food be killing us, but this is how we be surviving. And I would like us to challenge our tone around shaming and how people survive. And if people eating hamburgers or however it looks for them, they live in, they choose in a different life, they choose in differently than maybe how you would choose. It don't make it bad. It could be many impacts on the body, but they're also choosing to live by eating. So I just want to say that because I don't like food shaming. It makes me very uncomfortable. But nobody shaming. I love hamburgers. Just get you a, a lettuce wrap, though. I just wanted to provide more context for listeners. But also, working in schools is hard. But honestly, just working as a Black woman, I mean, just thinking about the mass shooting that just happened. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple, but the one in Buffalo, New York, particularly targeting us. And Black people are just expected to go to work after stuff like that. And that's what disrupts me. Working in general, none of us should be working. This is this is extreme trauma. We like get to see it on the primetime news, your trauma. And then they're like, go back to school, little black kid. Because once you get that piece of paper, that's the part that disrupts me. That's the part that disrupts my spirit. And because I'm in schools, I hear that kind of language and rhetoric more personally and up close. As Black adults, if we don't even take time to grieve, we know our children aren't. Mm -hmm. And that's what concerns me about working in schools, that I'm participating in the just go to school, knowing that it's breaking my heart. I can't guarantee if I can keep my children safe because of how this world is set up. And I know there's no safety There's no guarantee on how you could protect your children, but 
being black and being expected to work just in general, I feel like that's traumatizing enough. Yeah. To offer context, because I think to what you were saying, Jewel, I don't mean to offer shame or judgment about the apartheids that we live in and what we're offered. I think I'm trying to say to your point, too, that it's poisonous to us, right? The world that we live in. If I live in a poisonous environment, if I take a sample of that environment, doesn't matter where I stick the thermometer in, I'm going to get the same readout, right? Including the lack of food sovereignty that we have and the pathways mm-hmm. that they've given us to survive and to the shootings. I mean, to have that hit this week, which is unfortunately mundane in my life or my renderings, it's just like that was, what was that, a, a Thursday, a Friday? I don't even remember what day it was, you know? And then, you know, last night to see the tax returns of BLM leadership last night and to see the ways that Black death, which has always generated, Black death and life has always generated energy in the form of currency for the country. But to see other Black people relishing in that, you know, who were really called upon to be stewards, maybe for calls for accountability or recognition even though I think that's odd in our world to try to seek that, but even still, right, recognition of our lives mattering and to see the ways that that, at the very same time as you have this mass shooting, you got like the collective energy in response to mass shootings being utilized to, Hmm. I don't know, help people live luxuriously and lavishly. Again, that is what America is, right? Luxurious living off the reality of Black death. But just to see the levels of it, It takes me back to this question of what are the conversations that we're having rendering? What more do we say than Black people are dying and being killed and just uprooted? And that's not okay, right? I don't know how what ways we could say that more powerfully than what has been shared through the last few years by BLM. And then what's the outcome of that? The outcome is folks, you know, toasting on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, champagne. Right. And that's a heaviness that I think we're called to, if not deal with, maybe that's not our ish, but like to just name that and then move forward, knowing that that is a possible outcome for any of the work that we do, you know, from its most pure intentions, that is a possible outcome. What's accountability in a world like that? You know, are there any paid gigs outside of our work in relationship to Black suffering? The currency of this world is not going to pay us for anything outside of that. That's what I thought. So no, again, maybe people are taking this as me shaming those folks, but I think that what we heard from our podcast were these offers for alternatives. Mm -hmm. What else is available outside of the ways that this world frames our relationality with each other, with currency? Mm -hmm. How do we show up and support each other with the needs that we have, food, shelter, clothing, and otherwise, care, that are not holistically dependent upon, you know, the ways we have to curtail our work towards capitalism. I work in schools and I work around education because that is the pathway to more survival for more people Mm -hmm. until and if there's an alternative available. And I know that people have been trying to enliven alternatives and they get killed for that, you know, or they get undone for that. So it's not like it's just people are lazy and haven't gotten to it. I think that there's very real consequences for attempting it. The question is, does the podcast provide catalysts for those practices or possibilities? Or do we say, well, maybe we can get paid more for caring for Black people and less for being the sort of witnesses to Black suffering? Mm, That's so good. I want to say that when 
entering in the space of education, when I was entering in, in my 20s, a lot of what I had seen, I don't want to say like it was performance, but it was about knowing the language, knowing how to say the right things. And I was really interested in integrating the beliefs into like how I actually interacted with my family. And that's why a lot of my questions throughout the season was like, okay, so you got your master's in ethnic studies, you start teaching, wonderful. How did this apply to like how you treat your daughter? Because mm-hmm. I'm always curious like how this applies in real time. And I want to be totally transparent that I was she about that, especially when I was getting my master's degree. Because if you want to actually finish your thesis on time, you are required to isolate yourself, which is a very white hegemonic way of learning. And it's very violent. And I wasn't considerate of my mother. And I wasn't always calling and checking on her in the PhD process. I mean, it just made it so much worse. So there was so much undoing I had to do. And that I'm still doing, now I'm being honest with myself, probably going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Not because of how school traumatized me per se, but how school taught me how to love the investment of these ideologies versus actually bringing this into my life, Mm -hmm. you know? And so now that's why I'd be so serious about ceremony work, but with my godchildren, because they can't pay me, baby. Can't get rich off kids. <laughs> and a ceremony ain't cheap if you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to hire all these because I'm essentially a curator of the space. So I'm bringing all the things together. But that's why I started doing it because I was really interested. I have a lot to say about men and, and particularly black and brown men and how they continue to, in my perspective, like not operate within our communities productively and healthily. So I was like, oh, I have to take this anger, this belief that men can do better, and I have to actually invest it in the people that I'm raising. Again, it doesn't mean that I'm not above critique because I'm like a hot mess in most of my life. What I am curious and seeing more of us do is like, how do we invest, you know, these principles that we learn within ethnic studies, Africana studies, critical race theory? How do we actually apply that within our lives, with our children, with how we talk to people, with how we treat people. I'm curious to see that cultural shift where it doesn't become you're trying to get paid $10,000 to speak at an event about racism or whatever, but where it comes you're actually having conversations with your children about how to love themselves in a world that's not going to love them and creating celebration just based off of them being. I'm curious to have that shift for us culturally because so much of what we are trying to do is survive and that means going after money. But if you know everything you do in Africana studies or ethnic studies or whatever, if all of that is solely connected to money, I'm not convinced that what we're teaching is what we're gonna see a result within our communities. I don't think it starts there for most people, it being about money. I think most of our investment in a lot of this work, whether it's being in these programs, being in classrooms and teaching a certain way, I think it's about being seen and having a sense of belonging. I think that's for a lot of us where it starts. And our society is so fast paced, like you're always moving. It's radical 
to be able to slow down. And it's super weird to me now, but it wasn't before. I saw people who were doing that breathing stuff and people who were, <laughs> I was like, they're heck a week. That's why they're poor. Like, that's kind of how I used to see it. Like, what is you doing, bruh? Of course, it's different now, but like, I thought those were the failures, you know, and that was the work they chose to take up was that weird stuff because that was a space for them. But I think in my journey, the mentorship that I received, it felt very good. It felt like I was back in the black church. It felt really, really good. And I wanted both to feel that more, so to lean in toward that mentorship, and I wanted to help other people feel what I felt. That's why I entered the profession. I felt so seen and moved by a lot of my mentors, and they were mentored by folks who were existing in a very fast-paced society. And so I think the performative part of it, you kind of just got to get there. A lot of my talks initially were, I you know, prepped for weeks, not months ahead and prayed and put all this energy in. And then you start getting all these talks and you start getting all these invitations and the celebration that comes with that, like you killing, right? There's still that sense of being seen, of belonging to a community. I called you in. <laughs> then you just insert, you know, all the mess that comes with that. And if you are in that space that long, or you, you know, as Maya Angelou says, you don't pick it up, you don't put it down. Because if you start picking that up, it's really hard to put it down when the toxicity emerges. It's really hard to let that go. But so many of us come from spaces of not being seen, validated, placed in exile because of our identities and our realities, that that feels hella good for people to see you in that way. And then there's, I think they're ignoring of a lot of our traumas that come forward. So you talk about folks sleeping with people. I mean, if you got people in your face celebrating and praising you and you have been socialized to believe that that is, means you're powerful, that means you're valuable, I can see people leaning into that. You see people taking on gigs that pay them $15,000 to talk for 20 minutes. I don't think it starts that way, but at some point we start putting monetary value to our time, to our energy. And in some ways it's, I've heard people or it's justified like, you know how hard I work? You know what I mean? I earn that. Like, you know how much they pay? So-and-so they pay this person, five, you know, a hundred thousand. I can take my 10 and it starts, it just starts getting hella weird. I appreciate you, Jewel. I appreciate the episode with Cindy and Chanel and that slowness and the reflection to be able to see our society as just one subset of life. Because I think if you don't get that time to see this investment as an option, mm -hmm. it is the norm. It is what you do and, and you play these rules. But I also think that uh, when we were talking about accountability, it's like, Everybody, in some sense, I'm not going to call you out, Joe, but you said some things about your wellness and our work that we got mm -hmm, this weekend mm -hmm. where you were like, mm -hmm. you know, you, you felt like a hypocrite in some ways. All of us got that. All of us have these ways of being in some way that like would really confuse some of our biggest fans of like, why are you moving like that? Why are you leaning like that? I understand that part. And then the alternatives that Kendris is talking about <laughs> that were presented here, I think the alternatives that we present sometimes, I just feel like sometimes we talk about apocalyptic air, we talk about, right, abolition, 
It's like, well, this is the way to do it. Here's how we do it. This is, and I think for a lot of folks, they got to understand we're about to fall down this hill. We're about to yeah, fall down this yeah, hill. Yeah, it may yeah. be an alternative, mm-hmm. but it ain't going to look the way you thought it was going to look. Yes, yes, yes. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. No one said healing had to feel good. <laughs> I never remember hearing that it was going to feel good. Right. I don't feel good. But folks be out there making it like it's great. I think parts of it do feel really good. I think parts of it, I'm very grateful and, and feel very soothing and amazing. And then there's also the tension that I believe that we're taught to avoid. I think parts of it needs to look good for some folks to access, you know, money. It does feel good to know that you can be in self-reflection with yourself and hold yourself accountable after you've done harm or while you're doing harm or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those parts is like, oh, I got me. I'm self-aware enough to see myself in the moment and catch this Mm -hmm. and apologize, do better, whatever I need to reckon with. But the consistentness of that, of messing up, mm-hmm. whatever you feel that is, you know, that is what's hard because you're always returning to that source of trauma that you're trying to like heal, mm-hmm. you know, and you're always trying to forgive yourself for that same pattern, same habit, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So healing is good because you have the power to be in reflection with yourself. You don't need a Bible, a person, a priest, and nothing for that. You got that. It does not always feel good because it is consistent and it does feel like you are failing sometimes because you're doing the same thing and you may not be getting better results, but it doesn't mean it's not good for us. (laughs) Yeah. People have been mistreated. People have been harmed. We've been really just, Mm -hmm. if you just go to school, you're getting abused, you know, Mm -hmm. let alone what else goes on around you. And so what you were saying, Tiff, and Julia, like hits me, right? Like it is exhausting because it's not like the harm stops. You continue to get hit and harmed by so many different ways in life, you know? And then to be called in, I hate being called in. I mm-hmm. hate it. I, I hate Say it. Say more, man. Say more. Your cup is already being emptied by mm. the world. Mm. Right? It's like what it means to live in this space. And calling in, it's very difficult to distinguish when someone's trying to empty your cup, which is a, having survived domestic violence, abuse in schools, et cetera, surviving police encounters, all these things, right? And just general violence from other people. It gets blurry. I think that's part of trauma, right? Like you blur the lines between what is actually the violence and then what is someone who's coming to you asking for you to be actually in relation with them in a caring way, mm-hmm. it's hard to know. First, if you've been hit so often, it's hard to know what is a slap and what is not a slap, right? Because you get numb to it. And then if you get aware of that, which is what I think ethnic studies, all these things do, give us critical consciousness of how you've been hit. I'm looking out like, is this a hit? You know, and to something Isaiah said, like you become the hurt that happened to you. Mm-hmm. So you don't even know you're walking around messy. So for mm-hmm. me... Mm. When I'm asked to move in a way that is not harmful to women, I mean, in my own family, I'm asked by my daughter and my son all the time to move in a way that is not reflective of the harm that I endured as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's like immediate now. Like, yeah. Yeah. and I'll be That's thinking, awesome. damn, like I'm tired. 
I got all this other bullshit I'm dealing with, and I'm supposed to look you in the eye. You're two. I got to look you in the eye, yeah. and I got to calm my breath, and I can't make a face that is almost automatic. It looks like my dad's face. You know, like, that's a lot. Yeah. Those are people who come from me, right? Like, I had somewhat of a choice in helping those people manifest in this plane. When other people are asking me, saying, hey, let's let's do this. It's like, wait, are you trying to empty me again? Like, I don't have much left. And I think that's a major blockade. Mm. I feel like all of this, though, is us, I feel like, falling in love a bit with the problems. Because I feel like the solutions, how we move through that are very much available. But maybe it's the same way. It's like requiring us to just envision and live in this other world. If we had more care for each other, if we had really sincere systems of mutual or direct aid, if we centered Black women and femmes and babies and our elders, we're talking about really rebuilding or remembering our villages, Mm -hmm. then it becomes easier. It's not about money, right? If we have these other needs met, why do we need money? Then it's just about releasing. Tiff and I have a friend, Anthony, who I remember him taking pictures of Thomas the Train and he's just posting these pictures on Facebook. What is this? And he's like, I got this when I was two. My grandma gave it to me. It's one of the last things I have from her, right? And I'm like, Anthony, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just releasing all of these things in my life. His goal was to live with no more than a backpack of stuff. And that was such a hard way for me to envision moving because I'm surrounded by, and life is about trying to get enough stuff maybe to fill up the places where I've been harmed. Mm-hmm. Letting that go, I'm not ready for that. Yeah. But yeah. I know that that's what's needed. All of it, letting all of it go is what's needed. Yeah. On our um, restorative justice episode, Maisha was talking about. Oh, that was so good. Which I think came actually after we stopped the recording about how poverty can be so agitating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kendris and I, for me, it was like one of our most transformative experiences when we created a retreat together where I had been experiencing like so much. I was like overwhelmed. I was super overwhelmed. I didn't know how to convey that to Kendris and Aaron. I was trying really hard and I just couldn't for my own stuff, my notions of like what that means to not be able to do something and its relationship to love. And I finally like shared it with them one day and I was just like, I'm under capacity and I feel like I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then Aaron was just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't even know if he knew what he was apologizing for, but he knew just to, if a black woman is saying this, just apologize. <laughs> And then Ken just, he didn't say nothing. I think we were on Zoom. So he was just like looking at me. I was just like, what is that about? Like, and that really messed me up because Ken just didn't say nothing. That's my brother. And I needed him to say something. And so that messed me up. And we had this retreat later that we had, you know, was already in the works. And Ken just led this really powerful session where we were, what were we identifying our, uh, values, mm-hmm. right? And all my values were like, timeliness, organization, follow through. And as I was saying them, I was like, I'm such a sucker. Like, it just felt weird for it to come out of my mouth. And we did work in that session, though, about why 
those are our values and like our childhood experiences that have informed those values. And for me, I was making connections to my mom working hella hard Mm -hmm. through us being poor Mm -hmm. and me trying to prevent as much agitation as possible. I told them the story, like I would time it when she was coming home and I would like clean the house and vacuum at least, you know, I would, I would wait till like 10 minutes before she was supposed to come home. So the lines were still in the Mm -hmm. carpet, you know what I mean? And I would see how happy she was. And so I began to, at a very young age, connect productivity to love very, very early on. And I brought that energy into a lot, but especially my relationship with Kendris and Aaron. And so much so that when folks were just experiencing life and were not able to be present in certain ways or for me, I'm like, oh, you don't love me. You don't love this work we're doing in the same way that I do. And then Ken just shared some things, and that's not for me to share, but he shared some things about his values and what came up for him, but also what was powerful just now to hear Ken just say, like, he cool off being called in, right? Because he shared some really beautiful, powerful reflection with me about childhood and what that means when you feel like you're being called in or, or how that gets blurry. And I just remember like, bro, that healed, I would say like a solid decade for me, you know what I mean? Mm. Of relationship, of trauma and relationship with family, particularly with men. And so I hear you saying like, oh, you cool off of it, but that was super powerful for me. So I'm grateful for that. Wow. I mean, I'm grateful for the invitation that you were asking us, Tiff. And I think when you said what you did, my response was around, what if we did this? Or would it feel like this? And I was trying to offer solutions to fix it. Because for me being called in, part of what I was trying to say is that that came literally for me, it came with hits. You know, it literally came with actual physical hits. And so there wasn't a line like my accountability talks sitting in the room with my dad after whatever went down at school, you know, because bullshit happened to school. But then I'd go home and you get the other talk about what you did and didn't do. And some of those are really profound, important conversations, right, about values and ethics and what it means to, especially as we had this conversation with folks in the podcast, right, like healing from the guilt that comes with a for me, Christianity, church, school, were all the same place. So healing from that, but being very adept at it, I, I would quote scripture back at my dad, you know, and it would be like, okay, cool. But that was a test. And how I performed on that test determined the intensity of the hitting. Sometimes, sometimes, and a lot of times it didn't align with it. I did very well in responding to why Mr. Tobias sent me to the principal's office. It really was Renee talking, right? And I decided not to push back against it because I knew Renee had had a rough month, but I'm going to go anyway. I would say that and my dad would be like proud of me, but then he beat the shit out of me, right? And it didn't matter if I had said the right thing and did the right thing and offered up all these really powerful examples. And so I think that in a small way, that's what I'm trying to say is that there was a blurring of what it meant to be called into spaces of accountability. And that's my one experience with form of domestic violence that I know my dad had also 
was dealing with and had never really you know healed from which is why he was continuing the practice but i know that that is how we all are beat metaphorically in some way by our world mm -hmm. and so i just don't know where the spaces are and i appreciate you so much tiffany because our relationship has been healing to me to lean into those spaces of accountability that are really premised on you know love and care and not that people need to be treated gently all the time like some shit is just bullshit and it needs to be said as much but that to come from a place of care and not be accompanied by a hit has been really game changing so i wonder if we offered that to other I don't wonder, I know as we do that, some work with our group of weight in the water with our men's healing group, or we do that with some of the other spaces that I'm blessed to be in, we see these other sort of outcomes. Mm -hmm. For me, that moment was intense because what a great awareness to have, you know, like I was making those things just about you and I, when it's never just about the two people or the three people. Mm -hmm. If it's two people, it's at least four people involved in mm -hmm. the situation. It's us mm -hmm. and our inner children that are operating. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you know what I mean? Like to hear that, like when I'm called in, it's hard for me to decipher, right? If I'm in trouble or if I'm in danger, that's game changer for me. Yeah. And that type of space i think gives way to accountability i think when we talk about how cishet men are socialized in our society you know grab her smash right that's mm -hmm. you hear these messages all the time right mm -hmm. you're indoctrinated mm -hmm. with this and i think with the me too movement folks are like calling people out and then mm -hmm. folks are seeing what happens to people when they are called out right you're placed in exile you go to jail you are hated. No one ever talks to you again. But if you're a cishet boy or man and you've been socialized in a society that teaches you to do these things and now there's a movement that calls you out and that is what it looks like. I'm not coming forward either. I'm not talking about it if that's uh, the reception uh, that's on the it. other end. This is... I hear it. I don't think you're wrong. I'm also like, that's such a cop out because survivors like relive mm -hmm, trauma mm -hmm. all the time. And there's so mm -hmm. much choice that we don't have. Mm -hmm. and so that I'm not trying feels, to defend anybody. I'm just saying. No, I know. I know you're not defending. I'm just saying what it feels like. Yeah. But I'm very aware that feelings aren't fact. I'm very aware. I just know how it feels in my body. And I'm like, me sitting in the house this past week, I have not been reading. I've been binge watching all kinds of things. And every time a rape scene or something mm -hmm. that I've experienced closely to comes up, I can't watch it. I'm skipping past it. This is an everyday living reality. So I hear you though, Tiffany, and I firmly believe that we cannot move in and the language and the practice of accountability can't look like mirroring what our oppressors, how they have punished us just for being Black. It can't mirror that. Mm -hmm. I'm very aware of that. I don't have the next step solutions, but I also do know that in my living body, there are so many times when I am reminded of how safe I am not. Mm -hmm. because of what has happened to me. And mm -hmm. so for people to be like, well, I don't want to be held accountable because you're not going to like me. Well, yeah, we're not going to like a rapist. I'm so mm -hmm. sorry. 
I'm so sorry that we're not allowing this person who does not honor female bodies. There's just so much leeway that I feel like cis men are given. There's just so much permission. I feel so many things saying this because I know that I'm raising two Black boys. And I know that I'm doing everything in my power to allow them to see all these different versions of what your life can look like. But if there is no accountability, if there is just none because you're scared someone's not going to like you mm. and not considering how survivors have to live our lives, I'm sorry, it's just, it's not good enough. It's, it's not a good enough excuse to just, to not say nothing. All these people are being hard. But I think that's a trauma response, Jewel, because that's not what I said. What I'm talking about is the space, the options that are there for when people come forward. Mm -hmm. the spaces and options that are there. And what I'm saying is those are underdeveloped. Yes. We are very much responding. Yes. And then we yes. can take this in the context of folks who have cis body, folk who have harmed people. But I'm trying to make a larger message around what it means to be called in and that there's not a home. Yeah. There's not a space that is, and that's why I was talking through what Kendra and I were talking about is those spaces are super rare. So by no mm -hmm. means I have taught children who have harmed other people, mm -hmm. I still have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. I still have to create space. Mm -hmm. I have had to create space for them and practice on my own, really. Because a lot of other people were like, okay, expulsion is an option. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's the only I option. I hear, yeah. You know, or they go to jail or they go to prison. So little kids, right? And yep. so yeah, yeah. What I'm pushing yeah. back yep. against is if a society has curated these motives, yeah. these ways of being, and we are attempting to be countercultural, it's not about, you know, there's no accountability. What I'm challenging is what it means, the space that is there and what accountability looks like yeah. besides yeah. people being disposable. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of the conversation around abolition and the fact that we are called as much to build something different as we are to dismantle what is. And I feel that like double consciousness all the time. It came up this past weekend with the murders of those mm -hmm. black elders and other folks in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And I saw the pictures, right? The, the meme of this murder, right? Was taken in unharmed. These other people were unarmed and were killed, right? They compared the murderer to black people who unarmed and been murdered. And I'm like, okay, so does this mean we wanted to kill them? And there's no judgment around that. Like, again, maybe think about taking it out. But I'd be like, yeah, if your culture of survival and autonomy requires that those who do those sort of realities of unmitigated, unprecedented harm are exiled or killed, then that is the culture that you developed. I don't know what our culture mm. that we're developing is. What's our culture of survival and autonomy outside of what's around us, this carceral enclosure that we find ourselves in? What are the opportunities of something that we want different? Exile might be a good alternative. We imagine people going to jail. Many of us are prison abolitionists, but we still want people to go to jail for a mm -hmm. sense of being held accountable, even though that mm -hmm. that's not actually a system of mm -hmm. accountability that can meet what the cause is. And so I'm always thinking about that, that that's where our true responsibility lies as culture keepers or creators or rememberers is to re-enliven and then because shit ain't dead, we can't just do what was done in the past. I mean, what are we gonna do going forward? 
that attempts to address that, right? That ongoing harm of all the ways that people show up and harm other people or the planet or other non-human life. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging and it's messy. That's the work I think an entry point is thinking about a very specific types of harm. But, you know, last season we had Jari on and that was so vital because harm takes place in a myriad of ways. And we are mm-hmm. very specific and hegemonic about what harm is in our society, what it looks like in schools, what it looks like in our interpersonal relationships. And it's not to like minimize or flatten, right? Assault mm-hmm. or sexual assault by any means, but it is to complicate the narrative that in so many ways, what it means to grow up in a U.S. settler colonial society means to know more mm-hmm. about exploitation, rape, genocide. Then you do know about slowness, about love, about creating sacred mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Those things are modeled, just like what I talked about with cisset boys. Those things are modeled for us, and they're really subconscious. And some of the moments where that has come in front of me were with people, young people especially, who have called me out. Mm-hmm. No, they called me out. It's been hard mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I have all the tools to and people to say, no, that's not true. You're a great Tiff. Look at all the stuff you've done with kids. And I've had mm-hmm. kids who are like, yo, that was really abusive. Mm-hmm. You that was really harmful. But I'm like, not under the performative aspects that I've been mentored under. That's tough love. That's how you show up. You beat the hell out of, teach the hell out of, beat the hell out of young people so that the outside world can't, right? So that's some of the mm-hmm. mentalities behind that. So the first part of our season, I think, was doing the, the ethnic studies, the critical race, right? And that work, I felt like that's what I was doing in a lot of ways. And I think those ideas, those theories, those frameworks need to be placed in conversation with the second half of our season. Yeah. And they, they need to be practiced into your yeah. point, Joel, ritualized collectively. Mm. And I mm. actually believe that we are some of the last people who need to be leading this work. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on a yeah. call the other day that was saying that like, and Glenda, who's on here, she was talking about intuition and folks aren't, you know, necessarily using that language anymore. But some of the folks on the call were like, we don't get it. Like that doesn't translate. That doesn't make sense to us. How does this apply to ethnic studies? How does this apply mm-hmm. to critical race theory? Mm-hmm. And she was just like, Maybe we should just move in a way where we're okay if we don't see the connection. Yeah. And if we don't use that language, what if we're learning how to unlearn what we think it takes to do this work, what we think it looks like? What does it mean to be for boys, for men, for educators, for who? What does it mean to be so courageous to not know? Mm. To not know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it brings up fear and fear is this, uh, Mm. you know, it's this like counterweight to love, you know, for me. And something was brought to me about how these different practices, ethnic studies, critical race theory, all these things, and even the accolades that come from having some ability to understand and share about these things or teach about them is that they're vehicles, right? This is a vehicle that gets us from one place to another place, but they're not our destination. Mm. They're like the car or the bus. And at some point where I'm being called to ask, okay, are we here? Like, is it now time to exit 
and go towards mm-hmm. the destination. They got us to a place, but then what's mm-hmm. next? You know? mm-hmm. They did get us to a place and it's not about throwing those away or saying that they're not valuable. That's why I said it to be in a classroom and say, we're going to read about healing modalities. We're going to study We're going to just isolate the mind and focus on these things. And then what we were seeing when we were actually in the natural world, when we were outside of these dead spaces was fundamentally different. And we didn't have to even have the same type of curriculum. Like young folks were free in a way that I hadn't seen to engage in a type of experiential learning that to me is why I entered the profession in the first place. And it's not about... Well, maybe it is, but I'm not necessarily suggesting that people just go, let's get out of this place. Let's get out of schools. Let's not call it ethnic studies. Let's not call it CRT as much as I'm suggesting that we are invested in what an embodied experience of these ideas looks like and how it's manifested and what the outcomes are. Yeah. The best way I can respond is... I will know I've done what I was sent here to do based on how my godchildren morphed to be. That'll be one of the biggest indicators Mm -hmm. because that relationship, it's really important to me, but it's also taken my belief around celebration and ceremony and ritual and it's being applying it within a family dynamic that wants to live like that, you know, because a lot of my family do not want that. So that's okay too. (laughs) That was a hard pivot. I appreciate this pivot. I think a lot of the reflection is still very much grounded in so much of this season that started with the new direction of schools. And it took us a minute (laughs) to even talk about that, you know, going all the way to closing off with land based pedagogical approaches, right? What a journey. Mm -hmm. What were these experiences like for y'all to be a part of these conversations? To me, it pulls me closer to like living out my beliefs. I started to get really good about talking about land stewardship at my job. And then I was like, you don't know shit about no soil. Like I didn't know nothing about nothing. Started taking this permaculture class during the process of us even doing the interviews And I just don't know nothing. And I think being outside, going to that class every single weekend, being on a Black woman's, you know, three acres of land on Ohlone land, it's it's just really sacred. That was the only time in my life where I didn't know nothing and I was okay. Like, even when I was extremely uncomfortable, I was okay. Being okay with not knowing things and being around all these land stewarding people, beekeepers, folks who specialize in soil and water. I mean, like, I'm a director of It Doesn't Even Matter. And being in the land class, I was like, your job doesn't matter. Like, you don't know how to collect water. You know, like, so I'm able to have this real basic conversation with myself around what is important, and it reminds me of what Kenjis was talking about with y'all friend who, you know, got down to a backpack. I'm like, I get it. Now, I'm not there yet. I'm still like, listen, I am not there. 
But being in the land class and doing this podcast is bringing me closer to living a life that I really believe and that I don't just want to be a good person that can talk about things that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along the same ways, there's uh, this person we reference a lot, Sean Wilson, indigenous scholar who talks about how research is ceremony. And he has these steps about what ceremony is. And the first step is live a congruent lifestyle. Mm. And I feel like we had a month of ceremony every Saturday, you know, and we couldn't show up, I think, because we honor, I'm talking for myself, I'm trying to honor this work and honor the organizing that you've done, Tiff, and that so many folks from CRE have collectivized to do, to honor our guests, to honor my family and Jewel. And that meant that I had to be as close to possible of a congruent way of living with each week's conversation. And the one week I wasn't here to have the conversation was with our birth and death doulas, which ironically, you know, Cindy was the doula for our daughter. And I wasn't able to be there because I was at a funeral and life celebration for my uncle. And I think it was this, the month where we were doing these podcasts, I think when I felt like all the learning and gathering that we were doing had really solidified as a invitation to do different kind of work. So for me, that meant attempting to step away from academia, from the work of formalized education in this system, and into maybe similar work to what y'all do in Jewel in this soil class of doing some work around indigenous and earth-based home building and, and having that be the center grounding of my work. And that's is scary, but then same time we're having these ceremonies every weekend about why that shouldn't be scary. So the conversation with Theo and Jazz was game changing for me too. It was life affirming. And all the other conversations were really about moving away from how trauma has almost forced me to do things that I don't want to do. Like the one we have with Candace and Maisha. It's like, these have been really important ceremonies for me. And I'm grateful, even if I'm still a little bit afraid about what is possible or what's going to occur with money, with life. Like the stuff is scary, but I'm grateful for these conversations because they've been life changing and life affirming. Mm. One of my favorite scriptures, I think it was in Mark. I guess it's not a favorite scripture because I can't tell you where it's at. It said, <laughs> that I believe God, but please forgive my unbelief. <laughs> One of my favorites. I, you know, move so quickly. Y'all too know this. Move so quickly that uh, I was not always grounded coming into these episodes, I was focused on certain organization recording. And and what was so profound about this community that we have gathered for this season was that I could be sloppy and I had to get it together. And so such an important reminder. I liked it because it was like a personal trainer for me. Because even when I think about working with my real personal trainer, sometimes I'd be like, I don't need to be spending no money on this. This is ridiculous. I can do this by myself. And then I'll go like three weeks and I won't schedule nothing with him and I won't do none of it. So I was really appreciative of these episodes and these ceremonies and the grounding that came with it because it was like my personal trainer is reminding me and my body 
what we need to engage in, what we need to think about. And I had to sit down for two hours sometimes and really do and engage in that work. And I used to do that when I was teaching too. Like I would, I would assign books that I wanted to read <laughs> that I just wouldn't create the space to do myself. And I'm like, I'm not going to have kids read something I'm not reading. So we read it together. It's the same kind of milieu that was happening here. It was like, it was supporting me and doing the work that I didn't have the courage or the capacity maybe seemingly to do on my own. And I think that's the next step in what we're talking about and the work that we're asking people to engage in is to lean into something that for many of us, we've never seen before. And I see this season two as, again, its own personal trainer for not just me, but other people. I get lots of text messages and I'm super grateful. Emails and folks actually listen <laughs> and are like sharing their favorite part. I'm like, that's made it. You know how many podcasts out there mm-hmm. and people don't have to listen to you. And so when folks are like, yo, I mess with y'all and this part spoke to me, like getting texts like that, that's so humbling and beautiful. And I'm grateful for that. And we try to get it out at like seven something in the morning because folks be listening to it on their way to work on Fridays. And I think for a lot of people, it's that space where you get to slow down and be reminded and engage your own memory about why we entered this work in a society that moves so quickly that we easily forget. We easily forget why we signed up for this, why we wanted to work with young people in the first place. Uh, last season we had an episode, Carissa was talking about she would knock some hot chips and soda out of her kids' hands if she saw that. And she had a energy drink right next to her uh, while, while we was doing it. You know? And so we need those reminders. We need Sometimes we say we're in this for youth. We can't do this in sustainable ways for them if we're not investing in our own wellness. And so super grateful for everyone who has listened and taken us somewhat seriously. And uh, before we get out of here, I wanted to ask y'all to share what some parting words that you might want to share with listeners. I'll share this. Ku muba yandi, ku muba intambe, ku koku yandi, ku koku intambe. And it's just a prayer about the possibilities of flight to transcend the calamities that we find ourselves in, and that that flight is not only possible, it's necessary, and it is inevitable. And I just want to send the folks who share time and space and community with us that message and my love with it and my appreciation and my hope and belief in that reality for everybody who's engaged in this work. Well, since we're doing that, I'm going to share what got me through COVID. which was a prayer. I was on the hospital bed, y'all. I said, oh, Lord, you can't even find the vein, lady. I was talking mess while sick. And when the lady found the vein and I started to get a little high off their Benadryl, my body was really like it couldn't rest. And so I started saying this prayer, which was extended to me, 
And it's a prayer that I use when I'm feeding my E5, but also it's just a good prayer. It's the prayer that I taught my godchildren that now, coincidentally, they don't remember, but (laughs) it's in Yoruba. And so excuse me if I mispronounce some words, but I said it over and over and over again. And I swear by this prayer, every time I say it three times in a row, it really did change my life. And so this was the medicine that I used through my process of being sick. Ire Lafia, Ire Omo, Ire Owo, Ire Agbo Akto, Ire Ile, Ire Aje, Ire Eya, Kosi Iku, Kosi Arun, Kosi Epe, Kosi Ashelu. Now, I don't remember the translation for everything, but I remember most of them. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like blessings for life, blessings for children, blessings for abundance, blessings for a long life, blessings for partner, blessings for abundance. And then the Kosi is like, keep away sickness, keep away death, keep away um, you know, negativity, that kind of thing. And I swear to you, every time I did it through this process, I would do it three times in a row and I would feel better. And that's what I leave with, the prayer that I'm continuing to teach my godchildren and myself. Ashe, Ashe. you had peace in there too. You had prayer for peace in there too. Ashe, yes, yes, Alafia. Alafia. Well, it's been an honor and uh, this constitutes the end of season two of Drawing from the Well. All right. We appreciate y'all. We'll see if the gunnet let us have season three. All right, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drawing from the Well, brought to you by the Youth Wellness Movement. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. This podcast is co-produced by yours truly and John Reyes, with music by my boy Jansen V. Drawing from the Well is supported by Community Response of Education. Continue the conversation at youthwellness.com.